Hello and welcome to the Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. Uh, Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Today we are going to take a look at the prophet Hosea uh, for another week and a half-ish. We're going to look at chapters 8 through 12. And uh, beginning with chapter 8, you have that uh, call to, uh, uh, like an emergency call, uh, call to... Uh, made with a ram's horn. Raise a ram's horn to your lips. Uh, Vulture is circling over the Lord's house. Um, It looks like uh, trouble is on the horizon. Um, I was talking to a classroom of students today about this prophet. Uh, I was actually using them to uh, make some of my notes and and get ready for this podcast. And if if there's a question that comes up throughout our episode today, uh, it might be one that uh, they came up with. So I, I told them uh, Hosea is that prophet who God said to marry an unfaithful wife, marry a prostitute, uh, and then have your family be an object lesson uh, to show my people that they are being unfaithful to me, the Lord. And, and Pastor Lane, I see so much of America in this prophecy of Hosea's Israel, that God is talking about how Israel has broken their covenant with the Lord. And I see that here in our nation, uh, that America was established for Christian and religious freedom. But now it seems like so much of that religious freedom is being stripped away from us. Uh, Hosea summarized it. I'm kind of going to go work backwards in the chapter. Uh, At verse 14, he summarizes that Israel has forgotten its maker and built palaces. I think that's what's happening in our nation, that people have forgotten their true God. And he says in verse 12, Though I wrote many teachings from my law for them, they regarded them as strange. I think that's a good summary of our nation too, that the majority of our nation would view God's laws and God's scripture as strange. And then something has to fill the void. So, Pastor Layton, if you look at uh, this chapter, what did what did Israel use to fill the void since they weren't worshiping the true God? Uh, the uh, it talks about the calf idol in Samaria. The um, oh, I'm trying to see uh, any other things throughout the yep. chapter. Ver- that, verse four, it talked about that, idols of silver and gold. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There was a student that asked about that, and uh, my understanding of it, it it does seem kind of strange. Why a calf? Why is that always the thing to worship? And uh, you get a lot in these chapters of references to Egypt and the um, history that the people of Israel had in Egypt. That was sort of where they learned to be a, a society was from the Egyptians. Well, when the Egyptians depicted their gods, they would depict them as riding on some kind of a, a animal, uh, like a, either a horse or a cow or a bull, and the god figure would always be standing on the back of that bull, and that was how they rode the animal. And I, I think you sort of get the idea from the Israelites with the golden calf in the desert, and then here you've got a calf that... Uh, what they maybe thought was, well, this is okay because Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is not a visible God. He, is, uh, he has no image of himself. And so 
as long as we have God riding on this calf, it's okay to have the calf. Well, that's a pretty confusing thing for people that don't know all the details of it and pretty easily could lead people to think you're worshiping the calf, and that's really what they were doing, was worshiping the calf. Here I thought maybe it was they just really liked meat. Well, hey, it's what in India, right? The cow is a sacred animal. I Uh, I read an article in Not the Bee today. I was trying to find it while you were talking that uh, there are a bunch of tweets going around and they all collected them in Not the Bee of people not realizing where meat came from. They didn't, they thought, is it just skin? Is it, uh, you know, just muscle? And and it was was bad uh, that people don't even know where. You know, where meat comes from, of from from chickens and and cows and so forth, but that's that's a different topic. But verse, it, it reminds me though of this time that somebody stood up at a funeral, uh, his grandfather's funeral dinner, and uh, said, "I made a couple notes during the sermon, and I want to share them with you now." Uh, so I, I thought to myself, "Oh, good. I'm glad this grandson was listening to my sermon and not making notes to to talk at the funeral." Uh, so while I was talking, you were looking things up on the bee. That's right. That's... Yeah. Uh, but we were talking about these idols, and since Israel had forsaken the true God, they had to fill the void with something, and it was idols of silver and gold and uh, calves and so forth. And again. If you apply this to our nation, what does the, what do the people in our nation use to fill the void? Uh, claims of science, trans activism, racial divides, mandates and man-made laws, pleasure, ease and sex. And what was the result for Israel? Verse 1, the vulture was flying overhead looking to devour the carcass of the nation. And if you look at the way our nation is headed right now, becoming more and more Godless, I wonder if the vulture is circling over our nation's head too. When you mention that uh, people thinking God's mandates or God's uh, doctrine is strange, it reminded me of a couple that I was taking through uh, adult instruction one time to get confirmed. They never ended. They never did end up getting confirmed, but uh, th- there was more than one time where the wife responded to something that she heard this way. And the one that sticks in my mind is I told her that we keep track of the, our members who take communion. Uh, it, it was just kind of an offhanded thing, and I guess you don't really have to say that's a specifically biblical uh, thing to do. It's decency and good order. But I said, yeah, we we keep track, we keep records of our members who take communion, and she she said that's weird. <laughs> And and she did that more than once when I would say something about you know our our beliefs she'd be like that's weird, and um, I, I tried not to let myself be offended by it because yeah this is what the world thinks that the doctrines of God that God's doctrine is strange. And the last thing I want to point out was verse seven because this is a strange verse. Uh, because they sow the wind, they will reap the whirlwind. So what does that mean? Uh, it's, it means to put our trust in earthly sources of power or love other things ahead of the Lord. And so applying it to ourselves, what whirlwinds do we reap? Well, I think it's trusting in investments instead of investing in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, maybe it's trusting in earthly doctors instead of trusting in the great physician. 
that we reap the whirlwind when we rob ourselves of time with the Lord and gain instead only temporary rewards. So with those examples, what would the sowing the wind part be? I I think it's just kind of sowing, you know, putting that that stuff out there. Uh, I was thinking of farming. Uh, The way I picture it, I don't know if it's the exact right picture, but I picture when I was a kid and walking up and down the field and uh, planting the seed from a bag that I had over my over my shoulder and planting the seeds, but like, but the wind just blew it. But I don't think that's necessarily that picture. I think it's more of is it like trying to sow sow the wind and trying to plant you know plant the wind and then reaping the whirlwind. So could it kind of be like an analogy for doing nothing? Yeah. You're, you're, you're sowing, you're sowing nothing. You're not putting any effort into it. And then don't be surprised when you get a whole whirlwind of nothing coming back at you. Yeah. Yeah. So when I first read it, I pictured myself planting that seed, just walking up and down the little cone from uh, planting the seed coming from the bag that was over my shoulder. And then the seed just blowing everywhere. But that's not really the picture that he's talking about. It's what you're talking about is trying to actually sow the wind and it doesn't work. Hmm. All right. If you want to move on to chapter nine. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's always good to uh, keep in mind one of the things that uh, another student asked about was, uh, who's talking here? As we were reading this out loud in class, uh, she was wondering, who, who's, who's doing the talking? And I said, that's kind of a twofold answer. You've got Hosea, and these are his sermons that he would have preached, uh, but really it's God talking through Hosea. So whenever he says any of these things, uh, we, can, we can picture them coming directly from the Lord. And with that, uh, in my study, it pointed out that some have speculated that Hosea was presenting this section as a sermon at a harvest festival. And that's why there's so much imagery about harvest celebrations. Uh, but why does Hosea call the harvest of Baal worshiping Israel the wages of a prostitute in verse 1? Uh, well, they were prostituting themselves with Baal. We talked about this last week of their adultery with idolatry, that they're following the religion of the Canaanites. And they believe that their success in their crops came in exchange for the worship that they rendered to Baal. Uh, and I think, again, our whole goal with this is applying it to ourselves is you and I, as Christians living in America, we might think, well, we're exempt from those uh, simple-minded people all those uh, thousands of years ago, except, you know, Pastor Layton, what kind of gods do you think we see in the lives of ourselves and our people? Well, we don't, yeah, I was just going to say, we don't make little statues, do we? We don't carve wood or stone and, and say, this is, God is inside of this little statue. Um, but, uh, it, it, well, I'm holding in my hand right now this <laughs> uh, thing that is telling me at the time of how long we've been talking in this podcast, and uh, that I, I do tend to think there's a whole lot of power in this little uh, device. I'm talking about my mobile phone. Uh, it connects me to other people. It connects me to the internet. It is my alarm clock. Uh uh, it, 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 it times how long I brush my teeth, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, I end up thinking, oh, you I, I t- never... You time how long you're brushing your teeth with your well, phone? Well, you're supposed to do two minutes, right? Oh. So You know when I'm done brushing my teeth? 
when I get all my teeth done. <laughs> then, then I'm done. It, it's, uh, you didn't know you'd tune in to get dental hygiene on the Thirsty <laughs> Podcast, but these are the bonuses that we give to you, our beloved listeners. Um, uh, yeah, I w- you know, and I was thinking of other gods. Uh, that's a good one. You know, others like vacation, work, sleep, uh, maybe your intelligence, your ingenuity. Basically, it's whatever we believe, uh, where we got our stuff from, that becomes our God. And instead of trusting and thanking the God who gave us all this stuff, then we thank all these other things, and then those become our gods. The, high, the way Luther puts it in the large catechism is, uh, God is the highest good in your life. Whatever you think is the, the greatest good uh, at any given moment is, is your false God. So, uh, it, again, you, you, you mentioned some. You could list a spouse. Uh, the easy go-to is your money, uh, your children, your grandchildren. Um, these are all good things, uh, just as long as they don't... And, and the other thing, when you're talking about the prostitute's wages, it was reminding me of the rich man in uh, Jesus' account of Lazarus. Where what did God say uh, to the rich, or what did Abraham say to the rich man? You had your reward in life, and and I think that's the prostitute's wages, isn't it? That this is um, you do get something for your infidelity to to your your heavenly Father. You you get you get a reward. It's just only in this life, and that's kind of, that's that's a prostitute's wages. Yeah, and thinking about all of these other gods, because you see that so much in these chapters from Hosea. Uh, this morning I had a funeral for an older member at the congregation we just merged with. So I didn't know her. I didn't. Uh, I just became her pastor, and I hadn't even visited her yet before I did her funeral. And uh, what a blessing to do a funeral for a Christian lady like this, but it's so much easier to work with a Christian family when you're preparing the hymns and the scripture readings and and so forth, they understand. Uh, this family, by the granddaughter who was organizing everything by her own admission, she said, uh, I'm, I'm not religious. Uh, but she let me choose the scripture readings and so forth. We didn't have any hymns, uh, but I did have our musician play great uh, hymns before and after the service, Getty songs like In Christ Alone, Power of the Cross, because the song that they wanted played right before the service was uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. So I had told the funeral director, play it beforehand because they need to hear Christ's cross and resurrection as the last thing they hear, not Wind Beneath My Wings. But I told the musician afterwards that uh, I just wanted to drive a ice pick in my ear listening to Wind Beneath My Wings, because there's no comfort there. But that's what people want. They want this mushy, feel-good type stuff in our culture today instead of real law and gospel, cross and resurrection. Um, you know, that's, that's, we, that's the true God, but they like mixing it with all these other gods. One thing that just uh, hit me that I didn't really see before is in verse 10. Uh, he's talking about the Baal worship and uh, how the people long ago devoted themselves to a shameful thing, to Baal of Peor, and uh, and they became as disgusting as the thing they loved. And that is definitely something that still happens today, that 
uh, whatever it is that you think is your is your greatest gift, um, whatever it is that you love, you you kind of tend to turn into it. And uh, now, as I say that out loud, I'm I'm <laughs> failing to come up with a good example of that. Um, but uh, uh, well, I think a lot of times people say, "I don't want to become like my parents." Yeah, and what do they do? You uh, and you obsess so much about it, which is a kind of love to obsess about it. You obsess so much about it that then you do it. Yeah. Well, Pastor Layton, how would you respond to someone? who refers to this section uh, to show that the God of the Old Testament was an unloving God, a God of wrath, and so he's inferior to the God of the New Testament to forgive sin. I would say um, you sound to me like a social justice warrior <laughs> uh, or, or a member of the cancel culture. And, and here's the thing, when you look at these chapters that struck me, is uh, God never did this at, at random. Every time he talks about this, it's always as a consequence. It's never because he decided ahead of time, I'm going to destroy people just because I like to destroy people. Um, and so, uh, I mean, there, there are lots of ways you could take it. Uh, but I would say he's not doing this because he just likes to hurt and harm people. He's doing this because they first sinned against him. And, and you... Mr. Miss Social Justice Warrior would say the same thing with your cancel culture. So really, I mean, God, God has a cancel culture all his own. <laughs> yeah, and I would liken it to maybe parents that finally kicked their grown son out of the house. They can seem cruel and unloving. But for a decade and a half, ever since the guy was a teenager, the parents were warning the son to get out of the basement, turn off the video games, get a job get some sunlight on that pasty white skin. Uh, they might in the end seem unloving, but their patience has come to an end. And that's true of parents. And you see that throughout the Old Testament, you see that here in Hosea, that that's true of God. Eventually, he has enough, his patience runs out, and then there's harsh judgment. But it's like you said, it's not because of retribution. It's always as a consequence of their inaction and their willful action toward false gods, and but it's also bringing about judgment to call them back to repentance. And you could also make a good argument saying, um, at least God's talking to them. If you really disdain someone, if you absolutely abhor someone, you don't talk to them. You don't have any social interaction with them. God is having social interaction with them, and it might be harsh, but at least he's saying something. All right, moving on to chapter 10. Uh, so Hosea is talking about as the government and legal system broke down in Israel in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10, just before the captivity, the primary focus of the people showed where their hearts and loyalties really lay. And where was it? It's like we said before, it's with their idols. They feared the toppling of their calf idol at Beth Avon. Uh, Again, we encounter Beth Avon in the Hebrew, it means house of wickedness. And that's Hosea's derogatory term for the same place for Bethel, which means house of God, but he calls it house of wickedness. 
And so Israel's attachment to idols is contrasted with the righteousness God asked of it, with the blessings of holding on to him. So as we look at this chapter, you just need to watch for the contrast between righteousness versus wickedness. Uh, Another question that a student came up with throughout these chapters, uh, I'm going to pose it to you, uh, but I've, I've got an answer if you want to bat it right back at me, but... Um, I thought it was a good question, and it, and it went something like this: um, Why did the why did the people of Israel long ago uh, go so easily and quickly to worship false gods when they had much more recent contact uh, and and much more direct contact with supernatural things that God had the true God had done for them, uh, and and we who are so far removed. It's a little more understandable, but but for them who are so close to it, uh, why why would they run so quickly to false gods? Well, the quick and easy answer I, w- I would go to their sinful nature because the story I would go to is God is on Mount Sinai with Moses and Joshua, and the people are afraid yeah. of it going on up there uh, for a month. And while that's going on and they see the glory of the Lord on the mountain, at the same time, that's when they make the golden calf and mm. dance in revelry. So, uh, or, or all the times that they had God, God's visible presence, the glory of the Lord in the pillar of cloud over the tabernacle in the middle of their, their encampment in the mm-hmm. desert, mm-hmm. and still they kept sinning. That was that was my initial thought too. Was this is just what humans do? We uh, immediate our sinful nature immediately resists against uh, whatever whatever is good and right. Um, uh, but you kind of inspired me with your saying that to think of another point, which is that um, miracles do not convert people. It, it's it's a miracle when a conversion happens, but miracles in and of themselves. Uh, do not convert people. Uh, they can serve as signs to point toward the message. Uh, they can reinforce the message, but they can also harden hearts, uh, like uh, Jesus' own resurrection hardened the hearts of the chief priests when they heard about it. They they knew it was real. They knew it happened and, and uh, accepted it as a fact, but it did not bring them to faith. And And so even with the people seeing the pillar of fire and cloud and all the Old Testament uh, miracles, that's not what actually creates or, or strengthens faith necessarily. Verse 8 is an interesting verse. It is quoted twice in the New Testament. Uh, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So Jesus applies that in Luke twenty three thirty. He's talking there about in 70 AD when the Romans come in and destroy the temple, and then it's also in Revelation 6, verse 16, where it's applied to God's judgment. Uh, that God's judgment upon the people of Israel is going to be so bad that the uh, people in Jerusalem in 70 AD want the stones to fall on them rather than the Romans torture them. And the unbelievers on judgment day would rather have the stones fall on them than to face God in his judgment. And I think, again, applying it to ourselves that uh, we often don't take God's law and judgment seriously. Uh, Children don't think that their parents are going to hold them accountable. I hear it in our middle school when 
uh, students whine and complain because they can't play sports or this week they can't be in the uh, the school play because they were ineligible. They didn't, oh, I didn't think you were really going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our culture doesn't believe that we are going to be held accountable for our actions. So it's the same thing that was going on in Hosea's day where everyone does whatever they want. They are ignorant of any future consequences, but God warns that it's coming. Yeah, the verse that stuck out to me in this chapter is um, verse 13, and and it just uh, it kind of reinforces the worldview of works righteousness uh, versus uh, the Christian worldview. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of your lies because you trusted in your own way. Uh, in the large number of your strong warriors, you you were depending on your good works, uh, your your accomplishments, your career, uh, whatever whatever deeds that you have to get you right with God, and that's that's a false that's a false god right there. Um, I also thought of this encouragement just now. Uh, you were tr- God scolds the people for trusting in the large number of your strong warriors, and that kind of makes me think of how. Uh, people like to do to run popularity contests, and and we always think that if I've got the majority on my side, then you know that means I'm the winner. Um, I've got in this case it's soldiers. I've got the most soldiers. Well, that might help you in battle, but um, God laughs at that and He says that's a false that's a false God here. Uh, and I guess I'm saying this mostly as an encouragement for people uh, who are distressed by. The um, I'm sorry to use the term again, but the cancel culture all around us, uh, the LGBTQ uh, alphabet soup culture all around us that, that you think, well, it seems like we are in the minority. We who trust and believe in Christ and hold to his word, we are in the minority. And, and God tells you through this verse right here, uh, verse 13 of Hosea 10, that, uh, that he does, he's not impressed by popularity contest. Yeah, and that plowing wickedness and you know the what you're going to reap in the harvest is going to be injustice. You've eaten the fruit of your lies. Again, yeah, you apply that to our culture and unfortunately we're going to as Christians have to deal with this and live with it. And and yet I, I think it's really important for us to understand uh, that as Christians maybe just maybe when we see all this darkness coming, this is the time for the light of our faith to shine ever brighter. I think in the past, for the last several decades, we were just kind of going with the flow, uh, live and let live, and then thinking, well, people will let us live and let live. Well, that's not happening anymore. You know That we are trying to live in righteousness and sanctification, and people aren't going to let us do that because of, like you said, the cancel culture. And so uh, it's important for us to understand, yeah, it's going to hurt, but you and I as Christians, we're going to hopefully stand out in this culture right now. And uh, I thought I'd pass along uh, this morning for uh, Shoreland Chapel. Uh, we had the uh, video recording of a Pastor Wershke. I have yet to meet him uh, in person, but he gave a really good chapel devotion where he was talking about... Um, uh, well, he made a comparison of preparing a table before us in the, in the presence of our enemies, that God does that, and he compared it to communion, uh, which I thought was a neat analogy. 
Um, but uh, it, he started by saying that um, hospitality springs out of hardship and, and how people who are, when they're in their worst possible times, often let, like you were saying, let their light shine the brightest uh, and, and show the greatest generosity and hospitality uh, as a result of times of hardship. I'm good friends with Pastor Wershke. I went biking with him on Tuesday. Just, I would just say, come on, Dave, you got to go a little bit faster. Come on. <laughs> we don't want him getting a big head for his nice chapel devotion. You gotta, That's right. You gotta, gotta keep, keep him in his place. <laughs> All right. So chapter 11, you want to start out with talking with this chapter? Uh, I, I don't have a lot to say right off the bat, but it, I did notice that uh, it sounded familiar uh, with the New Testament, right in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, you and I never would have figured that out, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, told, uh, was it Matthew? Yes. That uh, this was actually a prediction of Jesus as a child going down to Egypt when uh, Herod wanted to kill him, and then God uh, calling him back home again uh, out of Egypt, I called my son. Yeah, and it's interesting that in this chapter we have uh, a glimpse into the ever-loving God uh, in, into his mind because, you know, I asked you in the last chapter if God is in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, and all you have to do is go to the next chapter. And here you see in these first four verses a God of love that he talks about sending his son. And like you said, we wouldn't find, uh, know that this was a prophecy unless the Holy Spirit told Matthew it was. And then verse two, it recalls Israel's prostitution with, uh, in Canaan. Verse three remembers the tender days when Israel was just getting up on its feet. And verse four, God is removing Israel from slavery and lovingly guiding and feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. So there you see God rescuing his people. This is not a God of wrath and judgment, but a God of righteousness and love. There, there is so much warmth in this chapter. Um, you've got, like you mentioned, verses three and four. Uh, it, what comes across really strong to me there is uh, a parent, uh, in this case, a father teaching his little child to walk. And you can just see the, the father's face lighting up to, to encourage the little baby. And uh, I took them in my arms and uh, I drew them with cords, uh, with ropes of love. And uh, I, lift, I, I, was, I became like someone who lifts a yoke off their neck and I bent down to feed them. Uh, such a warm and loving relationship. And then a little further in verse eight, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? Um, it, it's kind of like this, maybe a naughty little girl who uh, knows that she has daddy wrapped around her little finger and, and she just kind of bats her eyelashes at him. And he says, Oh, how can I give you up? Oh, I can't, I can't be mad at you anymore. And, uh, and you might think, well, God's such a sellout. And, and he sort of, he sort of says, yeah, yeah, that's me. Uh, My heart is changed inside me. All my compassion is stirred up. Um, how do you uh, reconcile that with God saying, you know, I do not change? I was going to ask you that question. You got me. I was going to ask you that exact question, that God does not change. And then verse 9, he says, I will not carry out my burning anger. Uh, yeah, and I, 
there's some other Bible verses, like in Jeremiah, he says that uh, he is not a man. Uh, it's for Samuel. He says, uh, I'm not a man who changes his mind. Uh, James, he says, I'm not like someone who uh, changes or shifts like a shadow. Uh, well, what we have to do is remember that uh, God's will can be conditional if he wishes. I think sometimes we get caught up in the mindset of fatalism, that mm-hmm. God has everything preordained and so there's no, uh, there's no changing. No contingencies. Yeah. So our comfort in God comes from knowing that he is an unceasingly faithful God who keeps his promises without fail or change. So since you asked me that question, I'm going to ask you one. Can you think of biblical examples where God did change his mind? Uh, well, the first one that pops into my head is um, Hezekiah with uh, asking, asking God. God told him, you are going to die. I have decided this. And uh, Hezekiah made his petition, uh, aside his prayer, and, uh, and then God sent him another word from Isaiah saying, uh, I, I'll give you a little longer life. Um, did you have another one? I think another one would be Jonah, that uh, with Nineveh, God said, sent uh, Jonah to Nineveh to say, I'm going to destroy the city in 40 days, and then they repented, and so he didn't bring the judgment on them. Mm. Or God getting so ticked off at the children of Israel that he was going to wipe them out and make uh, a new nation out of Moses. And then Moses held God accountable and said, nope, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You got to go back to your promises. You said, you said this. Yeah, you said this. It had to come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not through Moses. So what does that mean for us, though? Well, I think that it means that, for you listening, in your prayer life, you need to be like Moses. You need to hold God accountable to his promises. Tell him exactly what he's done. Uh, and I've been teaching the Lord's Prayer to my seventh graders in catechism class. And we spent some time saying, you know, don't just spend all your prayers on fourth petition, daily bread prayers, you know, house, home, health, family, anything physical, that's fourth petition. But that covers so much of what we pray for. There's six other petitions. Jesus is teaching us there, you need to pray for spiritual things. But tell God exactly what you want. Be bold, but then humble, praying like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. And then leave it up to God if he's going to bring about what he has planned, or you know, we don't know if he changes his mind. He, whether, whether he's saying, I do not change, or whether he's saying, I, I am having a change in my heart. Either way, those promises are always attached to grace and good news and the gospel. Uh, so I, you, you, can, you can approach him with confidence because he is so favorably minded toward you. And then chapter 12, uh, this chapter is about Israel's faithless failure to learn from the faith of its fathers. And we talked earlier about sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. And here, the first verse, uh, Hosea begins with that same kind of picture language. Ephraim feeds on wind and chases the east wind all day. Uh, So what's going on here is they're chasing after the lies of 
of their false gods. Because he continues in verse 1, he multiplies lies and violence. Uh, and, you know, like we talked about before, we have our own American idols. They're not ones, uh, well, they are, they are ones that are often of our own making. You know, the, the TVs and the video games and the phones that we hold in our hands. But it can also be leisure, sex, power, influence. Again, applying it to our lives, I think in different stages in our lives, we have different gods. For young families, the gods are children's athletics. For older adults, it's work and just owning stuff. And then senior citizens, the gods are health and mobility. But Hosea reminds us there is no spiritual nutrition for those from those things. It's like chasing the wind. Hmm. And as we, I, as we pass through those phases of life, we're just merely feeding on the wind. I was just looking at this newspaper that you left on the table here. Uh, and there, one of the gods, uh, there's a whole article in there devoted to the false god of personal safety. That uh, it, it, you, you, you think to yourself, well, if I just cross all my T's and dot all my I's, if I just practice every last bit of uh, uh, personal precaution that I can, the, the god of... Uh, personal safety will reward me with not uh, not ever getting sick and not ever getting injured, um, and that's just not true. That that God is a false God that's going to let you down. Uh, somehow, disease is going to work its way in, uh, it, you, or or death or injury. Um, uh, that's that's just another example I thought of. Yep, that's a good one. Um, this whole chapter 12 is uh, kind of a little bit of a history lesson. I, I really like that thing. I hadn't heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense now that perhaps Jose was preaching these during a harvest festival. Um, he does talk about a festival in verse 9. Uh, it's the festival of shelters or festival of tents where the Jewish uh, men and boys all had to go out and recall how it was like living in the wilderness by uh, camping out in uh, huts or uh, brush shelters that they would make uh, out outside of town. Um, there's mention of the uh, Jacob grasping his brother's heel and wrestling. Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, and uh, I guess as you were talking and I was looking at those verses, uh, it, it made me think of uh, how the the virtue of um, well, it's not really a virtue, but it's uh, tricking people. That's really kind of what. Jacob was known for was being a trickster, and uh, it, that could be another example of our modern uh, mentality of, uh, oh, if you can if you can pull a fast one in a business deal, then uh, you know there's more power to you. Yeah, you talked about verse nine. He says, "I will make you dwell in tents again." And is that necessarily a punishment to dwell in tents? Uh, I think for us, you know, in our homes. I know my wife and my daughters might think that having to live in a tent or even a pop-up camper for more than a few days is definitely a punishment. Uh, but for us, uh, you know, is it is it a punishment to have some of our wealth taken away from us? Is it a punishment to have wealth? You know, that's an interesting concept. Uh, you know, how can wealth be a punishment? Well, you know, God says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That, you know, sometimes our prosperity becomes that idol. And so it's okay for us as Christians to think, you know what, 
I'm okay if I live in a smaller home, if I live in a pop-up camper, if I live in a tent for a while and I give to the Lord. And there I'm thinking of, uh, you know, how we're blessed, you know, as a relatively small church and church body and to have people supporting the ministries. So at Pastor Lightning's school where he teaches and two of my daughters go to school, uh, a couple of big donors have come through to help them possibly purchase around 30 new acres. If you read about Martin Luther College, someone had given a large sum of money so that her name is placed on the new field house. So they actually have an indoor place to do sports in fall and winter. Or you're going to hear about this, Lord willing, at, with Synod Convention, but I can give you a little preview because I'm on the district mission board as the chairman, is our Synod is looking to start 100 new missions and 75 enhancements over the next 10 years. That's double what we've done in the last 10 years. Well, all of that only happens if God's people respond by, maybe for a time, living in tents, not as punishment, but as so that they can give more to support the ministry of the Lord. That's a, a great way to look at it and a great goal to shoot for. Uh, you're not, you didn't do anything wrong. Uh, this isn't a, a, a consequence of sin. It's just a, a way to help God uh, carry out, not... I mean, yes, he doesn't need help, but he lets himself need help. Uh, he he assigns us to do that work, and that's a good way for us to do that work. Um, I guess the only other thing I had on chapter 12 was verse 12. Um, Jacob fled to the territory of Aram. Israel worked as a servant to get a wife, and for a wife he took care of sheep. Um, it it kind of... Keep going. What, you're laughing at God's word? I am. I'll <laughs> no. tell you why in a moment. Well, it... it it, what hit me was um, Hosea preaching this about uh, a loving marriage relationship and how he was, re- he was recalling the history of Jacob and, and uh, Leah and then Jacob and Rachel. Um, and, and I wonder if he had any comparisons that he made to his own marriage and, and life as uh, he was thinking about that patriarch. The reason I was laughing at that line of, uh, he, and for a wife, he took care of sheep, is I have four daughters. And so the girls all know that in order for, for guys to date them, the guys have to ask me for permission to date my daughter. And one of the things that I talk to them about is, I just remind them that once they start dating my daughter, they owe me seven years of labor. <laughs> just like Jacob trying to get a wife. So they they owe me seven years. And and that carries over before they get married and then, you know, however many years after they're married, because that's how much my daughters are worth. There you go. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to bring up? I think that's it. Okay. So next week we'll finish Hosea with chapters 13 and 14, and then we're going to spend the next three weeks in Corinth with Paul as we study his second letter to the Christians in Corinth. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lightning Rod. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.